Well, good morning, church family. And if you would, take your Bibles and open them up, not to the book of Luke, but to the book of Ruth. If your Bible naturally falls open to Luke, that's because we have spent five months in that book. Uh, But now we're going back to the Old Testament, just as Jesus told us in Luke 24, all of the Bible points to him. And so we're going to look at a loved Old Testament story uh, to see how it points us to him. And so the preaching team, uh, as we grapple every year with what's the best text to preach to, we landed on the book of Ruth for several reasons. Number one is it is one of the best stories ever written, period. I mean, one of the best stories There are so many helpful layers to explore in this story and narrative and themes as we're about to see. I don't know about you, but on the rare occasion, and I mean it's rare these days, that my wife and I have the chance to catch our breaths, we might flip around channels on the television or we might work through scrolling services. And y'all, I don't know if you feel like us, there is nothing to watch. There are more options than ever before. And it's just rehash of the same old stuff or it's just stories that we look at and we're like, nah, we don't wanna invest in that, right? I think it's because there are such great stories in God's word that we're drawn to, right? That they, they stand in contrast to most of what the world tries to present to us, right? Which is the same stories retold. It's the same franchises rebooted. And so I hope that this story grips you the way it's gripped me. It's got great characters. We're going to be introduced today to the grieving Naomi and to the loyal Ruth. Next week we'll meet compassionate Boaz and on we'll go. It's got locations, right, that pique our interest. If you've been reading your Bible, the the country of Moab, the little town of Bethlehem, again, looms large in the biblical story. The plot of an unexpected love story where two very unlikely people meet and fall in love. On and on we can go. Uh, But this is simply one of the greatest stories ever told for multiple reasons and multiple layers. Second reason that we landed on this one was that this story is full of real life people to whom we all can relate. And it's real life situations. One commentator wrote this, most of us live in Ruth, not in Exodus. And here's what they mean by that, right? The theme is redemption, just like Exodus. And Exodus is a mighty story that is true and draws us in. But for most of us, we don't spend our mornings, right, going to gather manna. Most of us don't drink from water that comes from a rock. Most of us have never walked through a sea, right, on dry land. And so the reality is, for most of us, the ordinary providence of God how God is at work in everyday situations and circumstances is where we live. And the book of Ruth shows us that. It leans into some of our hardest questions, the question we'll see today. If the circumstances of my life are hard, is God against me? Next week, right, is God in the details? Week three, is God in relationships? And week four, what is God up to in my story that makes sense of his big story? And the third and final reason, of course, that we're going to look at this is to see these themes that Jesus told us that this book was all about. Models of godliness, light in the darkness, global mercy as he weaves the outsider into his chosen people. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a story about a woman looking for a husband or about a widow who finds a family. It's about a coming king and Messiah that the whole world has been longing for. This is Ruth's story, and we begin here. Stand with me in honor of God's word as we read the first five verses of this epic book. During the time of the judges, 
There was famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The name of his two sons were Malan and Kilian. They were Epaphrites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malan and Kilian also died, and Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Pray with me this morning. Lord Jesus, those are heavy words. To be left all alone in grief, in despair, with little hope for the future. And yet sometimes when we look at the circumstances of our life, we feel the same way. Like we're all alone. We don't know which way is up. We don't know which way to go. So Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes and our hearts as we see how your hand is at work in the details. God, that we can learn to trust your heart, even when we have difficulty tracing your hand. So as we plunge into this story, open our ears, our hearts, and our lives to you through your word, Lord Jesus, and show us how it all points to you. And it's in your name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Now I want you to keep your Bibles open because we're going to work our way through all of chapter one this morning. And so keep it handy. But uh, like a great story, even chapter one in and of itself has three great movements. And movement one for us is this. As we just read, right, things go from bad to worse. This is a warning to us of what happens when we do things that are right in our own eyes. That first line was a huge cue to the original audience and it should be to us as well. During the time of the judges. So if you want the backstory to Ruth, you've just got to flip back a page or two to the book of Judges. Which, by the way, is as dark and is as dangerous and is as foreboding as anything in all of literature, anything that the darkest television show or movie could produce is the book of Judges. It depicts the downward spiral of the sin of God's people. If you remember the big story, right? God led them out of Egypt 40 years in the promised land. They finally, in the book of Joshua, conquered the promised land, but they weren't fully obedient to God to drive out the cultures and the pagan nations that were there. And so because of their disobedience, as many commentators have noted, right, God's people took the land, but over time, the land took them back. And so they began to compromise with the gods and the cultures that were still there. And so it led to this downward spiral. At the end of the book of Judges, it ends with two horrific, and I mean horrific, stories. And the last line of the book of Judges is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Does it sound familiar? In those days, everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. Translation, you do you. There's no authority. It doesn't matter. You figure it out what works for you. And that's the opening of the book of Judges. And so after these two horrific stories... A lot In a lot of Hebrew literature, Ruth is actually placed there as an appendix. In other words, it's the third story. It's the story to show all hope is not lost. 
The next phrase begins to zoom in on the situation as the book opens. There was a famine in the land. Now we know, right, famines are terrible things. People don't have food to eat, right? The the poor especially suffer even more because they don't have anything in reserve. It's a difficult time whenever a famine hits or a famine strikes. But what's more foreboding is to realize how that's connected to what we just talked about in the book of Judges. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 28, as Moses is preaching the words that God gave him to give the people before they inherited the promised land, he was clear, right? You obey my word and it will go good for you. You disobey my word and I will have to do things that get your attention. And so famine was one of the things, right? Just as the people were unfruitful in their lives spiritually, so the land rebelled and it did not produce enough grain, enough food to feed the people. God's people reading these words would know exactly what this meant. So I know so far you're like, wow, Jay, this is a thrilling book. A couple lines in and already it's heavy. You're right. And it's about to get heavier because now the lens zooms in on one family. Whereas the book of Judges is about what's happening to the nation and the tribes, this is one family. And that's why we can relate to it. So a man did what? He left Bethlehem in Judah. Interestingly enough, the name Bethlehem means house of bread. There ain't no bread in the house of bread. And so this man named Elimelech and his family, they decide to take matters into their own hands and they move. Now, where they move is a curious choice. Moab. If you pay attention in your Bible, right? Moabites, Moab, that country is never associated with anything good. They trace their origins to the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. That's where their story begins. Then as God's people were coming through the promised land or are on the way to the promised land uh, after the journey through the desert, uh, this group of people tried to oppress them. We know Balak the king hired Balaam the prophet and the donkey donkey, uh, remember that story, to try to curse God's people. And so there eventually they ended up seducing them into idol worship and into sexual immorality and 24,000 Israelites had died in Moab. Not a good place. In the book of Judges, the king of Eglon recently, right, had tried to oppress them as well. And so it's curious, out of all of the places they could have gone, that Elimelech chose Moab. But there they went. They took their two sons with them as well. Their names, Malon and Killian. Now get this, the name Malon means sick. The name Killian means frail. I don't know what kind of parents name their kids these things, but can you imagine Naomi and Elimelech? Hey, meet our big strapping sons, sick and frail, right? It's a hint to us that bad things are about to get worse. And so in those days, right, when the patriarch, he ruled the family, it was almost like he was king over his own little tribe, Elimelech dies. But at least Naomi still has a couple of sons, right? But oh, their names are sick and frail. And guess what happens? After producing no heirs, no sons, they die as well. Now they have taken wives, but those wives are what? Moabites, part of this terrible group of people. And the Bible talks a lot about not intermarrying with people like this. And so all Naomi has left in Moab is a couple of daughters-in-laws from a despised people. That's it. That's the end of this first section of the book, things have gone from bad to worse and it stands as a warning to us. A warning to us of what happens when we try to take things into our own hands. On a human level, we can understand. 
There wasn't enough food, so you're doing what you got to do for the sake of your family. But there's a couple of problems with that. One is Elimelech left, left the promised land to go seek something else out instead of being patient, instead of leading his family and his people and his nation to repent, asking God to bring revival. In a desperation move, he tried to take matters into his own hands. And that's what we do a lot as well. Anybody remember reading to their kids the children's book, Alexander and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Day? Anybody show of hands? Yeah, we've read that one multiple times, okay? So you can just go ahead and call this story, this first part of the story, Naomi and the Terrible, Horrible, No Good, Very Bad Decade. Because that's where we find her in this moment. Now, we know in that era, patriarchs made most of the decisions, so probably most of this rests with Elimelech. Men, we need to be spiritual leaders in our homes. Elimelech led his family right into a disaster. But we also know common sense dictates, right, that us guys, we don't make decisions without our wives' approval. And so we know that at least to some degree, Naomi either had to or went along with it. But regardless of the fact, she finds herself in this difficult situation. And it's an indictment. This is what happens when we try to take matters into our own hands instead of leaning into the word of God. This leads us to stage two of the story, the long road home. And so she and her daughters-in-law set out to return to the ter- from the territory of Moab because she had heard in Moab that the Lord had paid attention to his people's need by providing them food. Now, you need to underline or highlight that word return because that is the key word in this section. It's the Old Testament word for repentance. It literally means to change course of direction, to change your mind, to turn around and go the other way. And it's used 12 times in its various forms in just this short section in chapter 1. In other words, they decided to repent from the territory of Moab. She, verse 7, repented the place where she had been living, accompanied by her two daughters-in-law, and traveled along the road leading back to the land of Judah. Why did she make this decision? Well, a little bit of good news had reached her ears. All the way in Moab, all the way in this foreign country, word came back that the famine had been lifted, that there was food. And just like echoes of the gospel today, right? When the good news is declared and people respond, then good things begin to happen. And so the first sign that fortunes are gonna change is repentance, is a change of heart. We got nothing left here, right? So let's go back home. Let's go back to God's people. Let's go back to the place where we can remember God at work. And so they begin this dangerous journey. As you know, in those days, you couldn't call an Uber to take you home to Bethlehem. You couldn't book a short flight, right, from Moab to Jerusalem. It's not the way that it worked. It was a long, hard, dangerous journey, especially for three women traveling by themselves. And so what's fascinating is, is that at some point on this journey, Naomi and the girls are camping out or they're talking as they're making that long walk. And Naomi has this interesting change of heart. She says, each of you need to go back, right? Repent to your mother's house. There's that word again. So you need to repent from your repenting, right? And so they're spun around emotionally. And she says this, she blesses them. May the Lord show kindness to you. 
Underline that word kindness because it is the Hebrew word hased. That word is loyalty. It's love. It's grace. It's the closest word in the Old Testament we have for grace. And it's going to play a larger and larger part in the story. But what you need to see is, is that Naomi and her character has this moment when she is willing to surrender the only little shred of security she had left. She was willing to give that up for the futures of her daughters-in-law. And so may the Lord grant each of you rest in the house of a new husband. And you can tell these women are emotionally bonded. She kissed them, they wept loudly, but they said to her, we insist on returning with you to your people. And so Naomi's like, girls, let's get practical for a minute. Even if you go with me, even if I could have more children and get remarried, like they, you would be way too old for you to marry those sons. In other words, like go back home. You can have your old life back. You can start over again. And then we see her heart. No, my daughters, my life is much too bitter for you to share because here it is. The Lord's hand has turned against me. Now we see what's really going on in her heart. You know, as a pastor, I encounter people all the time and they're not atheists, just like Naomi wasn't. They believe in a God, but because of the circumstances of their life, because of the grief and the burden they carry, they really feel like God is out to get them. Several years ago, My family, we were on a quick weekend trip to celebrate my daughter's birthday in St. Louis. And in one weekend, some of you have heard the story, right? We were victims of a smash and grab robbery. My mother-in-law was diagnosed with cancer. And on the drive back home, we heard from a repairman that our house had flooded. We sat there in stunned silence somewhere in Interstate 24. And at some point, my wife turned to our kids and said, which one of you has unconfessed sin in your life? right? I said, yeah, which one is it? Right? I jumped right in there as well. What happens in a moment like that? You man, life is just hitting you right and left and you're searching for an answer. You believe there's a God, but in that moment you're questioning, like, what is he doing? What is he up to? You are blinded by your grief. You're shrouded in the darkness. There's an old Far Side cartoon I thought of this week. I want to put on the screen for you, okay? I know it's hard to read, but it says God at his computer. And you have God sitting there and on the screen, here's this guy strolling down the street and there's a piano dangling above him by a thread. And if you zoom in really close to the picture, you'll see on the keyboard, the key is labeled smite. And what's sad is this is the view that many people in our world, in our culture, even in our churches have of God. That he's sitting there just waiting to drop the hammer. Just waiting, right, to punish us. Just waiting to drop that piano on our head. This is the grief that Naomi was experiencing in this moment. And here's the thing you've got to give her credit for. She says out loud what we all think at some point. Is God against me or is he for me? In my experience as a pastor, I don't encounter very many true atheists, but I encounter a lot of people who think that this is the way that God operates. We can really relate to Naomi. 
A lot of us, a lot of you watching at home online, sitting in these seats today, you feel a lot like her. You are crushed by your circumstances. You want to believe that God is for you, but you're having a hard time connecting the dots right now. It's why this story is so important. It's why we lean into God's word, not away from it in moments like this. I love what Pastor John Piper says. He says, God is probably doing 10,000 things in your life right now, and you may be aware of three of them. That's Naomi's situation, and it leads us to the third and beautiful movement of this story. And it's this, loyal love. Ruth commits to Naomi because she is committed to Yahweh. Here's something that nobody saw coming. We've already been given right a hint because the name of the book is Ruth. But nobody expects a Moabite woman to, to make one of the most beautiful professions of faith in all of Scripture. So in verse 14, at this moment, again they wept loudly and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. So after this latest conversation, right, Orpah counts the cost. You're right, I'm going to go back home and start life all over again in Moab. And we can't really blame her for her decision, but at this moment she drops out of the story, never to be heard from again. But Ruth, it says she clings Do you know where that word comes from? Genesis chapter 2, where it talks about a wife will cling to her husband. Like the bond is that strong. And here is what is remarkable. This Moabite woman who's literally the only thing that Naomi has left. Naomi now really, really brings out the big guns to try to convince her to go home. Verse 15, look, your sister-in-law has gone back. Translation, everybody's doing it. Ruth, just go on back home, right? Peer pressure. Everybody's doing it. Just go back home. She has gone back to her people. That's the Hebrew word for culture. You know the food your mama made? Imagine how good it would taste right now. Do you know your uncles and your aunts and your grandmas and your grandpas? Imagine how great it would be to be with them. Your culture, all of the festivals and the things that you love, go back to them. And then here's the kicker. Go back to her people and to her gods to her religion. The Moabites worshiped a different God, a God called Kamosh. And so go back. And this, I think, is where Ruth finally right, speaks up because this is the trigger for her to say, guess what, Naomi? I'm not going back. Do you know why? Because I've already decided to follow Yahweh. As we sing in the hymn, there's no turning back. This is a beautiful poem of Hebrew expression. Ruth replied, don't plead with me to abandon you or to return and not follow you. For wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. It's her profession of faith. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me so severely if anything but death separates you and me. You see, that's Hesed. This outsider, this Moabite, at this moment, her faith is stronger and bigger than that of Naomi's because she won't let Naomi deter her. In this moment, the entire book hinges on this profession of faith, the profession of faith of one outside woman, somebody who didn't get it, does. And in moments like this, this is where God is always at work in unexpected ways. 
The original audience, the Hebrew audience, would have never dreamed that a Moabite pagan woman would be the one to make the declaration of faith that turns the tide. But that's what happens. Because what Naomi has is God, a God who despite her circumstances has not left her when she has a faithful daughter-in-law. So Ruth commits to Naomi because she is committed to Yahweh. What happens next is interesting because if you think about it, Ruth takes a chance. This is what faith does, right? It takes a risk. Naomi doesn't know how she's going to, I mean, Ruth doesn't know how she's going to be accepted by the people of Bethlehem. She only knows Naomi. She doesn't know if she'll be rejected. She doesn't know how it's going to happen. And in verse 18, she gets the silent treatment. You know, after a profession of faith, right? We want everybody to come around us and hug us and encourage us. Instead, she gets the cold shoulder the rest of the way to Bethlehem. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped talking to her. And then anybody who has ever been born and lived in a small town can understand what happens next. The two of them traveled until they came to Bethlehem. When they entered Bethlehem, the whole town was excited or stirred up because of their arrival. In a small town, there's not much news. Tanya still laughs. When we were dating one time, she came to my hometown in South Central Illinois. The headline in the newspaper, I'm not kidding, was man drives lawnmower to Iowa. Like that was big news, right? In my hometown. And so not much happens in a small town. So suddenly Naomi is back. Look at her. Wait, she doesn't look quite the same. She's 10 years older. Life has been tough on her. Some people are probably, you know, excited. Whoa, Naomi, remember what we used to do when we were kids? There's family members there. There's probably some people concerned. Again, she doesn't look quite right. Looks like life has been a little hard on her. Where's her husband? Where's her kids, right? And then there's some people, let's be honest, it's a small town who are smug. Yeah, uh-huh, leave us when times are hard to go find a better life. Uh-huh, crawling back home, right? That's exactly what you get. Just go ahead in your Bibles, everybody do it, where it says, can this be Naomi? And write these words in all caps. Bless her heart. Because that's the way we'd say it in the South. And you know, that's what the little old ladies of that town were thinking at this moment. And so, Naomi... It's pretty raw. And here's what she says. Don't call me Naomi. That name means sweet, by the way. Call me Mara, which means bitter. For the Almighty has made me very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi? Since the Lord has opposed me and the Almighty, El Shaddai, has afflicted me. Now, that name Mara should ring a bell if you've studied your Bible. In the book of Exodus, in the great redemption story of Exodus, God's people come upon water, but it's what? Bitter. And so they cry out to God. And what does God do? He turns that water sweet. So you see, this is a hint for us in the story. It's always better to be honest with God. It's always better to bring him, right? What you really feel in your heart. Because even in the dark, the light gets through. And so we get this summary statement in verse 22. So Naomi came back from the territory of Moab with her daughter-in-law, Ruth the Moabitess. They arrived in Bethlehem at the beginning of when? The barley harvest. One more bit of light in a dark story. Guess when they arrived home in God's perfect timing? At the harvest time. 
Remember, the famine had broken. So there had been an entire season of growing, sowing seeds, right, and cultivating. And now it's time for the harvest. What's the harvest celebration in our culture called? Thanksgiving. You're right. Translation. Naomi and Ruth made it home in time for the holidays. They're home. The harvest is coming. All is not lost. And as with any great narrative story, we have to leave this week to be continued. Part two to come next week. But even in this moment, there are some important takeaways for us. There are some signposts that I would call them on the way that we need to pay attention to. The first one is this, is that all hope is not lost against a dark, dark backdrop. Ruth shines. Anybody notice our world and our culture? Is it getting darker out there? Yes. Every day, every time we turn on the news, every time that I I get in the me story, right, I'm more and more overwhelmed. I love the story of Ruth because Ruth brings me hope. It reminds me that in the smallest of ways, imperceptible to many, God's spirit is still on the move. He is at work. And there's an old saying that says it's darkest just before the dawn because God is up to something in this story. And it's even something bigger than Ruth, Naomi, any of them can even dare to hope or imagine or dream in this moment. This week, Courtesy of God's creation, we got a stunning glimpse of what light looks like against the darkness. Anybody see the supermoon this week? You go out Monday, Tuesday night, the full moon. This was a picture taken in New York City this very week. Supermoon happens, right, when it's a full moon, and it's the moment in the year in which the moon's orbit is closest to the earth. And so against the blackness of night, there, right, in the east came this glowing orb of the moon reflecting the light of the sun. That's the way the story of Ruth works to me. Against all hope, right, when all seems lost, God is up to something. And so Ruth, to me, is like this light shining in the night. Takeaway number two, right, signpost number two for us. We know, because the Bible tells us so, that God is for us, not against us, even when we can't see it. What does Paul write in Romans chapter 8, verse 31? What are we then to say about these things? If God is for us, then who is against us? Gospel connect. He did not spare even his own son, but offered him up for us all. You see, if you want to know where you're at in suffering, you need to understand that God suffered. You need to understand that God took on flesh in the person of Jesus. And so he knows what suffering and pain looks like. He took it upon himself when he didn't have to on our behalf. And so we can look at the big story, step back and remember that even in the middle of our crushing circumstances, that God is for us that he is not against us. That question that we have, that question that we grapple with, we can lean into it with everything, knowing that yes, in the moment, we don't have to minimize our pain or our grief or our suffering. It's one of the things I love about scripture. It doesn't tell us to try to explain away any of those things. Instead, it's met with the full resources of the gospel. Instead, the answering to our grief was met on the cross in the person of Jesus himself. So I was studying this week. There's a song that was popular about 15 years ago by an artist named Laura Story that kept coming to mind. It's called Blessings. We pray for blessings, we pray for peace. Comfort for family, protection while we sleep. 
We pray for healing, for prosperity. We pray for your mighty hand to ease our suffering. And all the while, you hear each spoken need. Yet love is way too much to give us lesser things. Because what if your blessing comes through raindrops? What if your healing comes through tears? What if a thousand sleepless nights are what it takes to know you're near? What if the trials of this life are your mercies in disguise? I love this next line. We pray for wisdom, your voice to hear. We cry in anger when we cannot feel you near. We doubt your goodness, we doubt your love. As if every promise from your word is not enough. And all the while you hear each desperate plea and long that we'd have faith to believe. You see, God in his mercy and his grace was leading Naomi even in her circumstance from the place she was to the place that he wanted her to be. Ruth's faith emerges against this dark time and comes alongside of God's people to show us all kinds of truths. Not only does the light conquer the dark, but also that the outsider gets in. We'll talk about that more in coming weeks. But the reality is, is that God is always at work. And this leads us to signpost number three. And this is the big one. And we're going to see this. That what we need is a rescuer. What Naomi needed was a hero. What Ruth needed was a husband, a kinsman, redeemer. But what we all need and what the world is longing for in a dark time is a true king, a Messiah. And what's hanging by a thread in this story is the family line. The line of Elimelech. And so what we're going to see is that God not only hangs on to that line, but he fulfills his promise in bringing us the king we need. But it all started with what? Coming home. So there are those of you today who the Lord is calling, come home in your grief, in your pain, in your suffering, in your confusion, in your questions. The first step is to repent, is to turn and come home. Bow your heads with me this morning as we come to this time of response. Just like Naomi, I'm going to give you time and space this morning to cry out to God. Her faith was not perfected. She didn't have all the answers. But she took the steps she needed to, to be, number one, brutally honest, And number two, to come back to the place that she knew God was at work. And so today, that's some of you in this room and in this place. The circumstances of life are overwhelming to you right now. You feel crushed. You feel like you cannot breathe. Would you believe the story? Would you trust God's promises? That Naomi never stopped believing in God, but she stopped believing in his goodness. Today, would you believe the goodness and the mercy and the grace that has said of our God? That He is working out the details, that He is at work all around you. And it's time to come home. So, in these moments, I want to give you 90 seconds to cry out to God, to tell Him what you need to tell Him before Luke leads us in a song of response. But let's all turn our heart and our mind and our lives to the Father who welcomes us with open arms this morning. Let's pray together.